Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, so we're going to finish Ecclesiastes. So um, let's read chapter 11, starting in verse 7 down through chapter 12, verse 8, which is really kind of one unit of thought. And we really have two parts tonight. There's really two major themes um, because we're going to look at this 11, chapter, chapter 11, verse 7, through chapter 12, verse 14, and then, I mean, through chapter 12, verse 8, and then verses 9 through 14 is the conclusion of the book. It's really kind of a different thought. So let's read this together. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body. For youth and the dawn of life are vanity. Let's just stop right there, okay? Here's the main point of this section. Since life is short, true joy is found in remembering your Creator. Life is short. Now, how many times has He told us to find joy Find enjoyment in what? Food, drink, work, your spouse, which are all good things, right? So he said, he's been telling us all along, one of the key themes is to find joy in the right places. When you have an understanding of God's goodness, an understanding of God's sovereignty, an understanding that everything that you have is a gift from God, there's nothing wrong with finding joy in the gifts God gives you if you don't abuse those gifts. Okay? But what are we tempted to do at times? Find joy in the wrong places, especially youth. This is addressed, now if we had a bunch of youth in here, some of you are younger, but if you had some some youth in here, this is addressed to young people. Notice what he says there in verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. So he's going to talk about younger people and how to live as a young person, but I think it applies to all of us. So on the spectrum, some of you may think you're young. And some of you in here may think, I, I, I'm old. So I still think I'm young. There's some of you that are younger than me. There's a lot of you that are maybe older than me. Um, we're, depends on your perspective. So <clears throat> I'm just going to, yeah, I know. So here's part one, verses um, seven and eight. Rejoice in the goodness of life. Notice what he says there. Light is sweet. It is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Basically what he's saying there is life's good. Life's sweet. Life is pleasant. But 
as we've seen over and over again, what is the temptation sometimes to do? To think so much about the future that we don't enjoy the present. Everybody's working for the weekend. Okay, if, if I just got to the weekend, things would get better. If I just waited till vacation, things will get better. When I'm an empty nester, things will finally get better. When I retire, things will finally get better. There's always this whole idea that there's something better waiting me out there, and if I just get to it, life will be good. Is that the way life works? What's he saying? He's saying, listen, there's enough in the present. Life is sweet. Life is good. Enjoy today. So basically what he's saying is instead of living in anxiety and worry about what you're not getting to experience in the future, don't waste time in the now to make a conscious effort by God's grace to find joy in every day. What does Psalm 118.24 say? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And we should say that every day. Every day is a day that God has made. So here's an exercise for you. When that buzzer rings, if it's a buzzer, if it's your phone or whatever, and you wake up and you're like, oh, man, I do not want to get up. I want to curl back under. I don't want to get up. You should have this song like plastered on your phone when it comes up. And you can jump up and sing that old song. This is the day. This is. No, I'm not saying you do that. But I'm saying you think in your mind, today is the day that God has made. If God has made today, I'm going to make the conscious choice to rejoice and be glad in it. Today. That's basically what he said. What was that? If it was warmer. If it was warmer. Well. Hey, we need the snow. Then in verse 8, he tells us, you bet, here's the point. You better rejoice today. You better practice rejoicing today when you're young. Because if you don't practice rejoicing today when you're young, you're going to grow old and bitter. That's what he says in verse 8. If a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. So as younger people, make the conscious effort today to rejoice, to practice rejoicing, to find joy in the Lord, because if not, as you get older, there's just something about old age that makes people bitter. I'm not... I'm not saying that as a negative thing, but you guys know it. For the most part, I'm not trying to be stereotypical here, but for the most part, when people get older, do you think they get a little bit more cranky? A little bit more bitter? Maybe. It has to do with health. It has to do with, I mean, there's a lot of things going against you when you get older. And so there's a temptation. Your body starts, you know, wasting away. And he's going to talk about that in great detail. And so he is really going to talk about that in great detail, which is kind of interesting. He spends a lot of chapters or a lot of sections there. All right. So part two here in verses nine and 10, he says, rejoice in the days of your youth. He's actually commanding young people. Look at verse nine. Rejoice, O young man. It's a command. You better rejoice. Find joy, young man or young woman, young person, in your youth. Let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes. What's he saying here? 
Sometimes young people can be anxious for no good reason. We would say this to a young person. Don't wait until you have a driver's license to enjoy life. Don't wait until you go to college in order to find joy. You don't have to wait till you're married to find joy. You don't have to wait till you have your dream job until you can find joy. As a young person, learn to find joy in the right places when you're young. Notice what he says there. It, it almost sounds counterintuitive to tell young people this. You're like, Solomon, are you sure you want to tell young people this? Notice what he says. Walk in the ways of your heart and the side of your eyes. Now, if a young person came into my office and said, Pastor Sean, what should I do? Follow your heart and follow your eyes. Um, okay, now wait a minute. Let's stop and think about what he's saying. So Psalm 37, 3 through 5 does tell us this. What does it say? Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell on the land and befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. There is nothing wrong with asking God to give you the desires of your heart. But let me give you a caveat there as long as those desires are his desires. Okay? So Solomon here is not giving blanket permission for young people to follow their hearts into sin, to live unholy lives of debauchery and pleasure. Because what does he say there? What's the caveat? But, look at the end of verse 9, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. You can enjoy life as a young person if it's the right kind of joy, the right kind of delight, if it's in the Lord. If it's in the wrong place, there will be consequences. Okay? So, I'm going to take us on a little journey here that maybe you've never thought about. If you've read John Piper, you probably have thought about this. If not, this may be new to you. God has created us for pleasure. Now think about that word for a moment. We, we, we were like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. The word pleasure sounds a little strange. The pastor saying God's created us for pleasure. That is responsible and godly pleasure in Him, not in sin and reckless living. What does the Westminster Shorter Catechism say? I mean, we say this all the time. The chief end of man is to glorify God and what? Enjoy Him. Enjoy. Now, there's two parts to that. You've got glorify God, and you've got enjoy God. So here's my question. Can you glorify God by not enjoying God? You were created to glorify God by enjoying God. Now, what is the word enjoy? What what, what word comes from the word enjoy? To find joy, to find pleasure, whatever word you want to use, to find satisfaction. So we were created to find joy, pleasure, satisfaction, purpose in God. That's why we were created. So we should not be afraid of the word 
pleasure, desire, joy, if it's oriented towards God. Now, Blaise Pascal was a French mathematician, and he, he said this. It's a very interesting quote in his pensées. Um, his, his think, that means to think in French, the thinkings, the thoughts. In man, there lies a, a, that, that, no, it should be there. In man, there lies an empty trace of happiness, which he in vain tries to fill from all his surroundings, seeking things in this present world. But these are all inadequate because the infinite abyss can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, only by God himself. Now let me paraphrase what he's saying there that you may have heard before. He's the one that, came, that was famous for saying there's a God-shaped vacuum in all people where everybody, basically what he's arguing is that everybody wants to be happy. Do you agree with that? Everybody searches for happiness in all the wrong places. The only person that can truly make you joyful or happy is God. That, that's, that's his argument there. And so I think when we talk about pleasures and joy, what does the Bible tell us? I mean, listen to some of the words that the psalmists use to talk about their joy, their desire, their longing for God, and see if we use terms like this. We don't talk like this. Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What words are in your Bible according to what God gives you? At your, in your presence there is what? Joy. At your right hand there are pleasures evermore. So God gives joy. God gives pleasure. So is there anything wrong with finding joy and pleasure in God? No, God has created us to find that in Him. The problem with sin is that we try to find that in all these other different places, not in Christ. Psalm 42, 1 through 2. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? So we've got some words here. What, what word does the psalmist use? He uses the word pants. My soul pants for the living God. My soul thirsts. What does it mean to pant? What does it mean to pant? You're not, no, no, nobody wants to do it. <laughs> okay? Nobody wants to pant. It means that you are... Are you tired? You're thirsting. You're longing like if you've been running a long time and you've been working out or like a deer running through the woods and you go lap up as much water as you can because you can't live without it, that's the image that the psalmist is saying, that's the way I relate to God. I'm panting after God. I'm thirsting after God. I'm wanting to find joy in God. I want to find pleasure in God. We also see this in Psalm 63.1, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So he says, I seek you. What else does he have up there? You've got the word thirst again. This time you've got the word faints. Are these the type of words you use for God? God, I faint for you. God, I thirst for you. God, I pant for you. God, I, I seek you. And then Psalm, whoops, I guess those are the Psalms. So 
Let me just introduce you guys. If you've, if you've written, read the book Desiring God by John Piper, it's a good book. He has a very provocative concept that freaks people out when they hear about it. But I want to kind of just introduce you to it. He calls it Christian hedonism. Now, when you think of the word hedonism, what do you think of? Isn't it like a resort where people... Isn't like he, When you hear the word hedonism, what do you think of? Never heard of the word? Okay. Who's never heard the word hedonism? Okay. The word hedonism means all-out pleasure and enjoyment. So, like, hedonism means pleasure and joy to the max. And his argument is that we as Christians should have all-out pleasure and joy to the max in Christ. Because God made us that way anyway. We shouldn't run from pleasure because God created us to have that pleasure, but it should be oriented towards Christ alone. And so he's got five convictions about what this type of, of life looks like. He says, number one, the longing to be happy is a universal human experience and it's good, not sinful. God has put a longing in all of us to find joy. So there's nothing wrong with wanting to find joy. But God made us for that. It's not sinful to want to have joy, to have, to have um, pleasure. Number two, we should never try to deny or resist our longing to be happy as though it were a bad impulse. Instead, we should seek to intensify this longing and nourish it with whatever will provide the deepest and most enduring satisfaction. And then he goes on to define that. The deepest and most enduring happiness is found only in God. Not from God, but in God. In God. Then he says that this is not a selfish thing, The happiness we find in God reaches its consummation when it's shared with others in the manifold ways of God. To the extent we try to abandon the pursuit of our own pleasure, we fail to honor God and love people, or to put it positively, the pursuit of pleasure is a necessary part of worship and all virtue. Have you ever heard anything like that before? Does it make you uncomfortable to think that God has created you for pleasure because when we think of the word pleasure, how have we, have, we, how have we twisted the word pleasure? When you think of the word pleasure, what do you think of? Okay, Risa, you're saying what? Sex. Okay, let's be real honest. Something sinful, right? If I get pleasure in something, it must be sinful. Okay? What's the root word of pleasure? Okay. If you don't like the word pleasure because it's so been so messed up in our american culture do you like the word joy is that a better word i don't know if i necessarily like the word happiness because i mean is is, what's the best word you can capture i find ultimate i like the word satisfaction joy or so i basically what what we understand from the scriptures is god has created every single one of us with an innate desire to find joy in something. Why do you think we sin? We're looking for that joy. We want to find that joy. And because we're sinners, what is the problem with our joy? What's the problem with our pursuit as sinners? We try to find it in the wrong places. Where should we ultimately find joy? In God. Not from what God can give you, but in God Himself. 
Now, God gives you gifts and God blesses you, but ultimately, we're to find joy in Christ alone. And I think if we have the rest of the teaching of the, of the New Testament along with this passage of Scripture, he would tell us here, find joy in God. Remove vexation from your heart, verse 10, and put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life or vanity. So, find joy in Christ. Do not find joy in things that are sinful because he gives a warning there. These things will bring you into judgment. So, is it wrong to pray, delight yourself? What does that scripture say again there? Yeah, tr- delight yourself in the Lord and He will give you the desires of your heart. What's the word delight mean? What does it mean to delight yourself in the Lord? What's delight mean? That's a word we don't use often. What is the word delight yourself? Delight yourself. Do you, do you, talk, do you use that terminology much? I'm going to go delight myself in something. <laughs> what? Be happy. Be happy, okay, but is it deeper than that? Yeah. Satisfaction. Okay, so... We don't like these words, do we? Because what does it automatically connotate in our minds? Let's just be real honest. Delight, pleasure, satisfy. Because we are so corrupt in our culture, what do we automatically think of? It has to always be about sex. Because we are an oversex culture. We, that's the way that we've been trained to think as Americans. Anytime these words are used, we get all, ooh, we're not supposed to talk about that church because it automatically goes to sex. The Bible uses these words. And it's about God. It has nothing to do with sex. Now, obviously, in a marriage relationship, you have freedom to find pleasure in your spouse because God has created marriage for that. I'm not going to go down that path because that's, that's another subject. But you can glorify God and enjoy God. So, see, a lot of times we're afraid of this word enjoy, whatever word you want to use. Find joy, find pleasure, delight yourself, find satisfaction, pant, thirst, seek, faint. We are afraid of these words because it means that what? We are wanting God to be our all in all. And because we've been so conditioned to think about, oh, I, I really shouldn't have passions. I, really sh- I, I need to suppress my passions because passions are a bad thing. What does the Bible tell us to do here? Pursue those passions, but where? In God, in the right place, in Christ. He's the only one that can satisfy. He's the only one that can fill. He's the only one that can give you purpose. He's the only one that can give you meaning. He's the only one that's going to give you lasting joy. And we're going to talk about the difference between lasting and fleeting joy because the Bible does speak about fleeting joy. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Okay? Mm-hmm. I thought it was called somewhere else. I can't remember where, but somewhere else in the Bible is saying not to, not to follow, follow your, your heart because it can be deceitful. Your heart is deceitful. Yeah, Jeremiah 17, 9. Yeah, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. When he says, walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, I do not think he's giving permission for a person to walk in sin. As a regenerate Christian whose heart's been changed. Now, what does the Bible say happens to us when we've been changed? He takes out the heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh. As believers, we have new hearts, right? 
So our hearts now are inclined to do what? To find joy, to find pleasure, to find satisfaction in Christ. Now, he doesn't flat out say this because this is Old Testament and this is wisdom literature. We've got to take the rest of the teaching of the Bible. But I don't think you can take this verse out of context. Like, you can rip this verse out of context and have a lot of bad things happen. Like a youth comes to me and says, you know what, I'm struggling with my, you know, I really want to have sex with my girlfriend and I'm struggling. Well, Ecclesiastes here, young man, says, walk in the ways of your heart, the sight of your eyes. <laughs> well, well, Pastor Sean said it's okay. So, I, mean, I mean, I could, that would be terrible terrible advice okay but let me ask you this what if a married couple came in and said we're having struggles in our marriage and and our and our sex life is not the way i didn't want to go down this path and it's our our sex life is not the way it should be can i look at two believing christians who are in a committed marriage and say walk in the ways of your heart and the side of your eyes would it be appropriate that way yes okay so it depends on the boundary and the balance and, and where you're at yeah, the context. And so, but, but he gives a warning there. Remember these things, God will bring them into judgment. So if you sin, if, you, if your eyes cause you to sin or your heart causes you to sin, God will bring that into judgment. God, there will be consequences to that sin. Okay? Now, let me just give you a little bit of more context here because he goes on. So let's look at part three because this is where it really you've got to flesh it out. So let's look at part three is remember your creator in the days of your youth. So let's look at chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keeper of the house tremble and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few. And those who look to the windows are dimmed, and the doors of the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of a song are brought low. They're afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home, and the mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit, of, uh, the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity, vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. What in the world does this all mean? What does verse 1 say? Remember your... What does it say in your Bible? Verse 1. Remember your Creator. It doesn't say remember God. Remember the Lord. Remember Yahweh. It says Creator. It's very specific. By using the term Creator... He reminds us of our accountability to God as His creation. Who created us? Everything we have is from God. Okay, so your life, your breath, your talent, your treasures, your families, your wealth, everything you have is because God gave it to you as a gift. He's your creator. When you're young, what are you tempted to think? I'm not accountable to anybody. I can live however I want. God doesn't have the right to tell me how to live. I can cast off all restraint and, do, and follow my heart. Because 
eh, I'll worry about God later on. I had a youth. When I was a youth pastor, I had a youth that was always causing problems. He was always getting into trouble. And I sat him down one time and I said, you have got to get your life together. You're making bad decision after bad decision. You are not walking with the Lord. You come in here acting like you're Joe Christian, and then I see how you live at your high school. You're doing all this destructive things. You've got to, get your, you've got to repent and get back to the Lord. You know what he said to me? I'll do that later on when I'm older. Right now, I want to have fun. I'll worry about that when I get older. Right now is the time for me to have fun, Pastor Sean. I don't want to be messing around with all that stuff. I'll deal with this when I get older. When he was 16. Okay. I follow him on Facebook. He's probably 30 now. Maybe early 30s. And he hasn't changed. And if I were to face him today, okay, it's been almost 15 years since you told me this. What's he going to say to me now? When I get older. Okay. So when you're young, there's this temptation to say, I'm going to live however I want. I can work things out when I get older. Okay? And he's saying here, remember, in your youth, you can follow your heart as long as it's godly. Follow the desires of your heart. Ask for the desires of your heart if they're godly. But also remember, you're accountable to your (coughs) Creator. Now, when he says remember, does that mean that we're supposed to like, okay, I forgot God's God. Like, okay, I need to wake up, remember. There's a God out there. What does the word remember mean? When the Bible uses the word remember, it's often a way to show that our daily commitment, our lifestyle should be centered on the glory of Christ alone. So when it says remember your creator, it's not like, let's just think of it this way. Not that you forget who God is. Most of us are not going to wake up and say, okay, I kind of forgot God is there. But can you live as if God you forgot about God. Yeah. So let me give you two New Testament passages that talk about this whole idea of living your life with your body for the glory of God, remembering your Creator. This is a popular one, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Present your bodies. He doesn't say present your mind. Now you, you will be transformed by the renewing of your mind, but where do you live your life? In your body. Where do you normally sin? In your body. Now some of the sins start... Where does sin start? In your mind. That's why he says you need to have your mind transformed. Sin starts in your heart and your mind, and then it's fleshed out in, in how you either speak, talk, do, say, act. And he's saying here, Paul is, daily present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, Paul says it again. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. That's a pretty clear, clear passage of Scripture there. Now, what Solomon's doing here, because who's he talking to? He's talking to youth. The context is the days of your youth. Remember youth. He's talking to young people here. It's key to see what he's doing. 
What Solomon does here in reminding the youth to find joy in Christ as a lifestyle of holiness before things start to happen. What he's saying is the patterns and disciplines you put in your life as a younger person will chart the course of your life into old age. I don't know if there's an age. Mariah, I consider you younger. Because you're younger than me. You're a young... I'm going to ask you how old you are. But you're a young woman. Okay? There's others in here. I'm not going to look around. (laughs) Good on these young. But um, I don't know if there's an age, but I think that... Let's just put it this way. Let me ask the older, more seasoned people in the class. You don't have to answer this. But let me just ask you the question. Do, Do you have regrets now in your spiritual walk, that if you would have known better when you were 20, you wish you would have put those into place then that would help you where you are now at 50 and 60? Some of you would be, some would be yes or no. Some Some have learned young to put those disciplines in their life and to have joy early so that when you get older, it's just part of your lifestyle because it started when you were young. Um, Yeah, and you can't. Yeah, you can, you can't do that. You can only move forward. You yes, can't go backward. But the point is, while you're younger, you're always going to get older. Yeah. Wherever you are right now, <laughs> no matter what age you are right now, you hope there's a future for you. It's never too late to start to find joy in Christ to remember your Creator, to build these things into your life now as patterns and disciplines and ebbs and flows so that they, 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 they're part of your life as you move forward. And that's why we try to instill in younger people when you parent, when you, when you parent your children. You're trying to instill, to teach, to, to get these godly things in them when they're young because he's going to start giving us... This is going to get really depressing. It's actually kind of funny when he starts going through all these things. He speaks in metaphor here about getting old. Okay? What happens when you get old? Well, here we go. Solomon, let's find out what you have to say. Old age can be a season of gloomy darkness. Notice what he says there. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. It's like this big storms are brewing. Old age is going to be like a big old dark storm. Verse 3, you're going to get bow-legged. Your bones are going to deteriorate. Look at verse 3. And the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. Okay, tremble. You tremble and you're bent. Okay, you're, I mean, that's what he's given this metaphor. Okay, number th- your grinders, Hebrew word molars, will fall out before you have to have dentures. Notice what he says there. Your grinders cease because there are few. The word grinders is the word molars. Your teeth start falling out. You can't chew. You're going to have problems. I mean, he keeps going on. Your eyesight's going to grow dim. You're not going to be able to look out the window. The windows are dim. The windows of your... Your teeth are falling out. You're bent over. You're trembling. You can't see. Then he says... um, you will get hard of hearing. That's this whole idea of the doors being shut. The doors on the street are shut. Your ears are shut. You can't hear. 
Verse 5, you're going to be afraid of climbing stairs for fear of falling. They're afraid also of what is high. You're not going to want to get out and take a walk for fear of tripping. There's terrors on the way. You're going to get white hair. The almond tree, the almond tree blossoms uh, from a distance. An almond tree looks like white human hair. You're going to get... So, so he's painting a great picture here. You're bow-legged, you're bent over, you're trembling, your teeth are falling out, you, your eyesight's going bad, you can't hear, you got white hair, you don't want to climb up on a, on a ladder. It's a day of darkness. And then he says, you're not going to be like a grasshopper. Notice what he says there in verse 5. The grasshopper drags. Now, when you think of a grasshopper, what do you think of? Grasshopper's like bopping around. The grasshopper's dragging. It's, so he's basically saying, your agility, your virility, you're not the grasshopper you once were. You're kind of dragging yourself along. And then he says you're going to need Viagra because in verse 5, <laughs> I didn't say it. Yes, I did. Um, verse 5, he says, desire fails because man is going to, the desire fails. Now that could be desire for food. It's not that funny. <laughs> I guess it is funny, but it's old age. I mean, he's painting here a picture of old age and he says eventually your life is going to be like this golden bowl with the silver strap you're going to be a you know golden oldie you're going to be this old precious vessel and it's going to just shatter and be decrepit and snap and break and notice what he says there verse 6 before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and then in verse 7 you're going to go to dust And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit goes to God who gave it. So you're going to die a blind, deaf, bow-legged, decrepit, teeth falling out, white-haired, old... I mean, he's, he's basically given us this... Solomon, why are you doing this? I mean, we're laughing at it, but I don't think it's meant to be laughed at. Why is he doing it? Why is Solomon giving such detailed graphic depictions of the vanity of growing old. Because notice what he says in verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. What's he, why, is he, why is he painting this like, like the worst case scenario picture of growing old here? I mean, he's like piling it on. It really is that way. An oldie but goodie. An oldie but goodie. <laughs> who's, he talking, who's he talking to? It's to urge... Yeah, don't wait. Yeah, that's what he's saying. To urge young people to remember. What does verse 1 say? Remember your Creator in the days of your youth. To urge young people to remember their Creator, find joy in Christ as a lifestyle before it's too late. Because when you get old and you don't have these things built into your life, it's going to be dark. It's going to be gloomy. It's going to be vanity. In other words, what he's saying here is establish good patterns and disciplines in your youth that focus on finding joy in the goodness of Christ by living a life of holiness to Him before you get old and bitter and regret a life of sin and disobedience and lack of joy. Now let's talk a little bit about Moses because there's an interesting passage of Scripture. I remember last year we did Hebrews. I know you guys can't remember that, but we did Hebrews. (laughs) Hebrews 11 
24 and 25, in that Hall of Faith chapter, there's a lot of verses about Moses, but there's a very interesting statement about Moses. Remember the story of Moses? He grew up in Pharaoh's court, and he decided to leave Pharaoh's court to go be mistreated as a slave. And then he you know, basically murdered and had to flee. But notice what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, 24 through 25. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the what? Fleeting pleasures of sin. Now notice what the text says there. He did not want to enjoy. Now the word enjoy in the original language means to hold on to, to regard to cling to. He did not want to hold on tightly to the fleeting pleasures of sin. Think about all the sin Moses had at his disposal. If you were in the the court of Pharaoh and you were basically grew up, what would be at your disposal? All the food, all the wine, all the women, all the riches would be at your disposal. Everything a young man's heart would want would be in Pharaoh's court. And Moses chose not to enjoy that. Because what does it say? He knew it would be pleasure, but a fleeting pleasure. Now notice he calls sin what sin is. He calls it the pleasures of sin. Is sin pleasurable? Yes, that's the point. We wouldn't sin if it didn't give us pleasure. What's the old adage? If it feels good. Okay. Sin is, don't let anybody lie to you and say sin's not fun. You wouldn't sin if it wasn't fun. Most people sin because in some ways, we talked about earlier, sin fills a void of joy, of pleasure that you're seeking, but what's the adjective he puts before it? Troy, Troy said it. What was the adjective? What does it say there? Fleeting. It's a fleeting pleasure. What's the word fleeting mean? Passing. Temporary. Literally, it's for a season. You, When you sin, you may experience joy, happiness for a season. But it's going to flip, fleet away. In Galatians... 6, 7 through 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So here's this point. Since life is short, true joy is found in remembering your Creator, especially when you're young. Now, before we move on to the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, are there any thoughts or comments on that section about growing old? Okay. Yes, Lori. There's joy. They were strong in the Lord and 
they were able to overcome yeah. that. And so maybe they learned when they were young. Yeah, or may, yeah, maybe they learned when they were young, or maybe God gave them the grace when they're old. But it, it's a beautiful thing. I think it's a beautiful thing to see an older person who may be suffering, but they do it well with God's grace. And, and that, I mean, we've known ladies like that. I was thinking the other day, I was talking with Dawn, how many like godly women in our church have died in the past three or four years? that I've had to do funerals for. And sometimes when I'm preaching, I look out and I don't see those ladies anymore. And I think, wow, we've lost a lot of godly saints. I've seen it when I worked in the nursing home. We had the, the four, we had four ladies in one area that were all in their 90s. The nicest women I've ever, they, because they, you know, you can mm-hmm. tell if they were suffering. I mean, they were 90 years old. But sure. they were getting themselves up and they were doing everything for themselves. But you could mm-hmm. see that God really had a, yeah. Good influence yeah. on them. I mean, they just took all yeah. that stuff with the stride that they got. Yeah. And you can be bitter at any age. Oh, you don't yeah. have to wait till you're old to be bitter. You can be bitter as a youth. Yeah. And you can have joy as an old person. But I think what Solomon's saying here is don't grow old and bitter and joyless. Learn as a youth, as a young person, to, to find this joy in Christ before you get old and bitter. Mm-hmm. Not just youth. Well, no. <laughs> like all of them. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Yeah, but they're more prone to, yeah. Right, yeah. And it's it's like, and you can't tell them. They won't listen. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't Because don't most youth think they're invincible? Oh, yeah. Most youth don't think they're going to, most youth do not think about death. I mean, I mean, obviously there's some that struggle with things like that, but I'd say, and I'm making a general statement here, but most youth think they're pretty invincible. I'm not going to die. I can deal with that later on. I'll get my life right after I get out of college and get married and settle down when I'm in my, my mid-20s. And then you're in your mid-20s and it's like, well, when I get my mid-30s, I'll do it. Well, when I get my mid well, maybe. <laughs> and you keep prolonging. When I retire, okay, you know, maybe when I'm in the senior adult home, I'll get my life together. I mean, yeah. So anyway, any, any other thoughts upon this this passage about Youth and growing old and finding joy, remembering your Creator. Sean? Yes? If you're brought up in the church, in a church, and you will remember this as you get older, even in your 20s, I did, mm-hmm. and you don't do things like that. Mm-hmm. So, and it's good to be brought up in a church and some people aren't but you can reach them and you can reach them mm-hmm. that's why we that's why we have what's going on tonight yeah, trying to reach right. all these younger children and youth it's harder to come in not growing up in a church and say that for myself i mean i didn't start going to church till i was in high school and then i stopped mm-hmm. and now i'm back and i'm glad i'm back it's harder i mm-hmm. to try to come back and that's why my kids are yeah. Scattered amongst the building yeah. as we speak now. <laughs> well, I would just say this. There's no... Um, how, do I, how do I put this? We, we want at Emmanuel everybody, regardless of background, to be connected to church. Whether you've grown up in the church or whether you've just walked foot into the church. Or you don't know anything about God. Um, I had a kid come into my office. I, I was hoping he'd come to church Sunday. Um, and it was two weeks ago. And basically, he's a senior in high school... And he said, I'm looking for God. Can you help me? 
So I sat down with him for 45 minutes and shared the gospel and kind of came from a rough family and he's looking for acceptance. And his word was, I've gone to four or five different churches in this town and I haven't felt accepted. And I said, well, we will accept you. And he looked pretty rough. I mean, he was got some... Yeah, just... My dad's resolution to problem children is send them to reform school. Okay. And when they get to be you know, 14 or 15, off they go. I was fortunate. That you didn't have to go? To. Okay. <laughs> well, my point was is that we want to accept everybody in their path of growth where no matter where they are with God, they should be welcome to come into the doors of Emmanuel and we should help them and disciple them and, and as they're under the preaching of the word and teaching that they'll get, they'll get that. We're not expecting everybody to come in with like theological knowledge that you can throw down in Bible trivia. You know? We're going to have a sword drill. Don and I were talking the other day about what would be faster in a sword, like the old sword drill. She's, she thinks like people that do their physical Bible can find it past, faster than people with the electronic Bible. And I said, that's going to be close. I say, because if you have version open, you can beep, 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 three, three fingers. If you try to find Second Hezekiah 13, somebody looking at me like, where's Second? There is no Second Hezekiah 13. Where am I going to find it? <laughs> so anyway, we're, 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 getting on to, we're getting off on a tangent. Let's finish. Let us finish. I'm in John. That's not where we need to be. Um, that comes Sunday morning. Um, so let's, let's finish Ecclesiastes because this is where everything is brought to clear focus. I mean, everything comes into clear focus of everything that we've seen in this book. And so let's read verses 9 through the very end, 9 through 14. And, and he says, verse 9, Besides being wise... The preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware anything beyond these of making many books. There is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So here's his point. You truly demonstrate that you worship and honor God by keeping His commandments. Now, in verses 9 through 11, you've got what I call an editor's commentary on the teacher. Most scholars believe this was probably an editorial edition because it's actually talking about the preacher in third person. It's no longer I. You know how throughout this book it's like I observed, I saw this. It says, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. So he's talking about the the preacher, the teacher, who we would assume is Solomon. And what was Solomon's burden? He taught the people knowledge. Now, what type of knowledge are we talking about there? Knowledge that leads to a fear of the Lord. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So he has basically been teaching us knowledge and wisdom to fear the Lord. And in verse 10, it says that the preacher used powerful words and images and proverbs to write down this truth. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. In other words, what we've just read over the past few months have been words of delight, words of truth. Words of truth because these are God-breathed Scripture. Now, we may not fully understand all of it, but it, it comes to us as Scripture. And we know that 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture, all Scripture, is this Scripture? All Scripture, even Ecclesiastes, is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's really what it's done. And now in verse 11, we have two metaphors for what this book has done to us. The words of this book, the words of the wise. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. What's a goad? So number one, these words have been like goads to painfully move us in the right direction. What's a goad? Yes, it was an ancient stick. It's like a cattle prod. It's like a long stick that's kind of like, it maybe have a little bit of spikes on it, but it was basically a pointed stick that shepherds would use to poke animals to get them going the right direction. It would inflict pain so that the animal wouldn't go off the path. So let me ask you a question. Has there been some teachings in Ecclesiastes that have inflicted pain, that have painfully moved you in the right direction. Now, maybe you don't remember all of this, but notice what he said in chapter 7, verse 5. This was kind of a painful statement. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Sometimes the Bible rebukes us. What does it mean to be rebuked? Corrected, disciplined, get, get in our face. Um, chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there's not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. That's kind of a strong statement. Goads were used to steer animals in the right direction. Ecclesiastes was written to steer us in the right direction, and sometimes painfully. Can you think of another person that tried to go against the goad? Acts 26, 13-14. Saul, who later became Paul, said this, At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when I had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So did Jesus get Paul's attention? Blinded him, knocked him down converted him. What was Paul trying to do? He was kicking against... What's it mean to kick against the goats? You're trying to go your own way against the way that God is prodding you along. And so the 
the teacher here says, or the, the, the editor of this last section says, the words of the wise are like goads. They, these words that we've read in the book of Ecclesiastes painfully at times are to guide us, to prod us in the right direction. But the second metaphor, he says, is they're like nails firmly fixed. Literally tent pegs. When you think of nails back then, more like tent pegs. Number two, these words have been like tent pegs to ground us firmly into God's sovereignty. Okay, what did tent pegs do? They're staked into the ground so that the tent does not... So it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of stability. It's a picture of being anchored. So two metaphors. One, God's goading us in the right direction, but these words are also anchoring us into the character of God so that we're not blown away like the wind. And Paul tells us that in Ephesians 4, 13-14, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. So Ecclesiastes, whether you remember it or not, these past three or four months, has been used to prod us in the right Direction should be the right direction, and to provide stability and security. And yet, it's very interesting. Who's the source behind these words? Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Solomon. Who wrote Ecclesiastes? Yes. What does it say there? Look at verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by what? One is shepherd capitalized in your Bible. So who is the one that has given these words? Yes, Solomon is the human writer, but who's the source behind the giving of Ecclesiastes? The one shepherd. Who is that? God. Does God reveal himself as a shepherd? What's a shepherd do? Why use the word shepherd? What does a shepherd do? Guides, leads, protects, cares for. All throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the shepherd. Back when um, Jacob was even blessing his sons, he referred to God in Genesis 48, 15. He blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. God has been my shepherd. What is Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Psalm 80, verse 1. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. And then I love Isaiah forty eleven. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. What a wonderful picture of God. What's the picture there? You're a helpless little sheep and God comes and picks you up gets you close to his chest, holds you there, and carries you where you need to be as the good shepherd. And then there's a prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34, 23 through 24, written many years after King David was already dead about what God would do. It says, I will set up over them one shepherd, 
my servant David. He shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be the prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Who's that talking about? David's been dead for hundreds of years. So how's God going to raise up the one shepherd, David, over his people if David's already been dead? Who's that future shepherd that God's going to raise up to lead the people? It's Jesus. And what does Jesus say in John 10? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who's a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are out of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock, one shepherd. So what the writer's saying here is, like a shepherd, God has prodded us, God has guided us, God has given us stability in these sayings to help us go the way He wants us to go. And then there's this statement in verse 12, be aware of a bunch of books. <laughs> be aware of anything beyond these words. In other words, there's a lot of books out there that have wisdom that are not Scripture. What does he say? My son, be aware of anything beyond these, of making many books, there's no end. Do you, I, don't know, I don't know how many books come out a year. Do you guys know? Anybody know? Like if you look at Amazon, there are a lot of books. And what he's saying is you can, there are so, think about, like Laura used to work in a Christian bookstore when we used to have Bible Lighthouse here. How many Christian books, I mean, there are thousands and thousands of Christian books, and a lot of them are just kind of weird and what I would tell new believers, that's why I often tell them, the last place you want to go is into a, you want to read your Bible, not another, not another author. I mean, other authors help you. What he's saying here, all right, should we never read books? No, we're not saying never. You can get insight from people that know a lot more than you. But he's saying the ultimate wisdom is going to be found in, in the scriptures, is what he's saying. Okay, let's get to the conclusion of Ecclesiastes, verses 13 and 14. How do we know it's the conclusion? Well, because it ends, and there's the books, and then the next page is the Song of Solomon. But what does he say there, verse 13? The end of the matter. Everything's been heard. I've said what I need to say. It's the end. Here's my point getting to the end. Here's the summation of all things. He gives two commands, two very clear commands. What are the two clear commands? Command number one, fear God. Now we've seen this before. Go back to chapter 3, verse 14. What does he say? I have perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear God before him chapter 5 verse 7 for when dreams increase and words grow many there's vanity but god is the one you must fear 718 it is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears god shall come out from both of them Chapter 8, verse 12. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear 
before Him. He's introduced this theme all throughout Ecclesiastes to fear God, and he's ending with fear God. So the question is, what does it mean to fear God? I'm a God-fearing man. What does it mean to fear God? Yeah, to fear God means to acknowledge Him in our daily lives as the highest good, to revere Him, to honor Him, to worship Him, to center our lives on Him. Respect, honor, fear. God is God. He's sovereign. He's the potter. We're the clay. We're to live in that healthy respect and awe of who God is. Now, how is this tangibly lived out? Because Jesus says this, In Mark 7, 6, he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it's written, The people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. It's easy to say, I fear God. It's another thing to actually live it out in daily obedience. And that's where the second command comes in. Look right there. Verse 13, the end of the matter is here. All has been the end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. Keep His commandments. In other words, be obedient. So we truly demonstrate, demonstrably, evidentially, that we honor and love and worship God through obedience. Deuteronomy ten twelve through thirteen. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, there it is in Deuteronomy, to walk in all of His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for your good. Do you see all the things there? And that's a, that's a summary statement of the Christian life from an Old Testament perspective. You fear God. You walk in His ways, you love God, you serve God with all of your heart, you keep His commandments, and why are you doing all this? Well, number one, because God is telling you, but notice, it's for your good. It's because it's the way God has ordained life to be. Psalm 112.1, Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. You've got both of them there in that psalm. You've got fear the Lord, Delight in His commandments or obey His commandments. Now, He gives two reasons why we're to fear God and obey His commandments. He gives two reasons. For, here's reason number one. For, this is the whole duty of man. Now, let me give you the original Hebrew. The Hebrew does not have the word duty. Does anybody else have a word besides duty? In their um, translation, anybody else have the word? Any, any other word besides duty? Is it omitted in anybody's translations? Literally, it says, "This is the whole of man." In other words, it's not just a duty. Like, okay, this is what I have to do. What he's saying is, this is the essence of what it means to be a follower of Christ. 
To fear God and keep His commandments, this is, the essence, this is the whole essence of who you are. This is the wholeness of who you are. This is the totality of what it means to follow Christ. It's not just a duty we do begrudgingly. It's not something we do because we're guilty. It should be we do it because it's who we are. That's reason number one. You do this, you fear God, you keep His commandments because it's who you are. It's the whole essence of who you are. It's, it's part and parcel of who you are as a believer. But number two, reason number two, four, verse 14, four, there's the purpose. God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, let's talk about final judgment here because we need to be real careful. Jesus does say in Matthew 12, 36-37, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Wow. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Does that mean we're saved by our words and we're sent to hell by our words? No. It just means that you, everything that comes out of your mouth somehow on that final day, God's going to take into account. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, let's be real careful here. Will we as Christians be judged? For salvation. No. Where was our sin judged? On the cross in Christ, He took our judgment. So for salvation, you're not gonna, if you're truly saved, you're not going to get to the gates of heaven wondering whether you're going to get in. I'm not sure if I'm going to let you in because, I mean, if you are a Christian, your, your, your life, your sins, everything's been judged in Christ. He's taken that. You are declared not guilty. You're justified. You are going to get into heaven. But the Bible does speak of some type of judgment of deeds that we will be accountable for. Now, don't ask me how that's going to happen. I've heard some pastors say, you know, God's going to put a big screen up of all the evil things you've done. I'm like, I hope not. <laughs> and everybody's going to be standing in line and we're all going to be looking at all the... I mean... But look at all the things you did. Okay, number, number, all right, think about this, okay? Think about this. When you face that judgment, whenever it is, you will be in a glorified body, so it's, you're going to be perfect. So you're not going to be jealous that somebody else got a better reward than you, and it's not going to be fearful that God, I mean, it's going to be a just judgment, and I don't know if God's going to, I mean, the Bible doesn't say how God's going to do it, it just says it's going to happen. Yes, Bob. Uh, <clears throat> Yeah, 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 and it's and it's not like you're going to be jealous of somebody else over here. Like it's not going to be like like oh man, I got to be in line next to Billy Graham. This is not going to be good, you know. <laughs> it's like look at all the crowns he gets. I mean, you're not going to be jealous because somebody got more than you. You're going to be in a state of perfection. So I don't know exactly how it all works, but one thing I do know is that you, as a Christian, do not fear punitive judgment because God is. Punish that in Christ. I mean, John 5, 24. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So, we do not obey God 
or keep His commandments out of fear of being judged in our salvation, but we do it out of gratitude and joy for His grace in judging those sins in Christ. Why do we keep His commandments? Do we keep His commandments in order to be saved? No. Do we keep His commandments as a result of salvation? Yes. And do we do it begrudgingly or guiltingly, or do we do it with joy? Okay. What does Jesus say? I mean, these are the words of Jesus. John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. How do you truly show you love Jesus? Obedience. John fourteen twenty one. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 1 John 5, 3, For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. So, what's the ultimate point of Ecclesiastes? What's the end of the matter? What's His main idea? He, rem- he reminded us at the very beginning that life under the sun in a secularized worldview without God, without God, is vanity. It's meaningless, it's empty like a mist, it's absurd. Now you probably don't remember this unless you go back and look at your notes, but we're going to recap the issues here. In chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, Solomon told us that seeking material gain through worldly and secular means is absurdly futile, much like a hamster running on the proverbial treadmill. Instead, seek Christ, live for Him, and find your joy in Him. And whatever your labor is for Him, it will not be in vain, but have a God-honoring purpose. There's that whole find your joy in God. In chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, 26, Since worldly pursuits are meaningless, find enjoyment in God's daily gifts of food, drink, and work. I mean, that was a theme that, that was repeated many times. In chapter 3, 1 through 15, because God is absolutely sovereign over everything, we should stand in awe of Him. There's that fear of the Lord. Stand in awe of Him. Chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 6, in a cutthroat world of selfish individualism and competition, you should enjoy your work in quiet contentment and in cooperating friendships. This is what we're talking about work and friendships. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 16, Since worldly pursuits are meaningless, find enjoyment in God's daily gifts of food, drink, and work. Doesn't that sound familiar? That was a repeated theme. He repeated it. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 7, When we gather together for corporate worship, we must worship God with reverence and awe. Guard your steps when you go to the house of the Lord. Let your words be few. Chapter 5, verse 8 through chapter 6, verse 9. Instead of pursuing wealth that leads to worry, enjoy daily gifts that lead to contentment. There's that theme again. That was a big theme that we looked at. Chapter 6, verse 10 through seven fourteen. In times of suffering, we should trust in the sovereignty of God by looking for the good in the midst of the bad. We talked about suffering. Chapter 7, verse 15 through 29, Since we cannot understand the perplexities of this life, we can become tempted to either try really hard to obligate God to bless us by being righteous, or we can give up on pursuing holiness and fall into major sin. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 17, We should diligently seek wisdom in order to survive in this sinful world, yet we need to realize our limitations. 
Chapters 9 and 10, since a small amount of foolishness can ruin the influence of wisdom, be sure to use God-given wisdom in key areas of life. And we talked about politics and work. And Chapter 11, verses 1 through 6, since we do not know the future, use every opportunity to take risks, but with wisdom. We looked at the la- that last week. Then what we looked at tonight, 11, 7 through 12, 8, since life is short, true joy is found in remembering your Creator. Let me give you a quote from Dwayne Garrett, who's written a commentary on Proverbs. It's not on your sheet, but I, let me just read this to you. He says, quote, Everything that Ecclesiastes has affirmed up to this point, the sovereign freedom of God, the limits of human wisdom, thoughts on the use and abuse of wealth and power, and the brevity and absolute contingency of human life, all lead to the command to fear God. The insignificance of all that's done under the sun leaves him awestruck and silent before God. His inability to control or predict the future provokes him to dependence upon God. So here's how I think we should end Ecclesiastes. After all that a sovereign God has done for us and His Son, Jesus Christ, we are called to love Him with a life of joyful gratitude that is expressed through daily obedience, not as drudgery or out of guilt, but empowered by grace as a gift. Fear God. Keep His commandments. This is the whole essence of who you are. Remember, there's going to be a day of judgment. So take things seriously. Remember your Creator. Find joy. That's how it ends. The end of the matter.